Hey everyone, this is Josh with Spurgeon Maniacs to share how you guys can partner with us. First off, thank you to everyone who has been listening to our show and to those of you that came to our conference. We are gearing up to expand what we do for you guys, but we need your help. Go on over to patreon.com forward slash Spurgeon Maniacs. We would love to have your support to continue doing this podcast, conferences, and so much more as we grow. Also, give this podcast a five-star review on Apple or Google Podcasts. That's how more and more people are going to find what we're doing over here. Lastly, come find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and don't forget to email us at podcast at SpurgeonManiacs.com. Now, here is your episode. Charles Spurgeon was a man that God used, and millions are still being impacted by his kingdom work. As we examine his life and ministry, we hope to strengthen today's church and bring glory to Christ. My name is Joel Littlefield, lead pastor of New City Church in Bath, Maine, and I'm joined by my brother in Christ, Josh Whitney. Welcome to the Spurgeon Maniacs podcast. Hey, all you Spurgeon Maniacs. Well, we have another conference recording for you. Joel and I had a interview planned. Unfortunately, schedules didn't align, so we've postponed that. We are going to be interviewing this person live sometime next week, and we are very much looking forward to that. But in the meantime, you guys are going to hear from Dr. Renahan and his second conference talk and this talk is entitled equipping soldiers for battle we're going to listen to dr renahan now share a little bit about spurgeon the purpose of the college and everything that went on there so i hope you guys enjoy this wonderful talk we were blessed to have him and i hope it blesses you as well sit back and or drive and listen well to dr renahan share about spurgeon's college Equipping Soldiers for Battle. I hope that, I think that this will be a suitable complement to what Ed spoke to us about before uh, lunch when he talked about um, street preaching because really the impetus for what I will describe to you was street preaching. So it's, a, I think, a, a complement, C-O-M-P-L-E-M-T, M-E-N-T, rather than a compliment, although I will compliment you on your work. All right. Um, have your Bibles ready, because we'll look at some familiar passages in the Scriptures. Uh, 2 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy 4. We'll be looking at those a little bit later on, as well as some other texts as well. Whenever a true minister sees blessing on his ministry, he longs for more. Not in a a selfish sense, but he wants to see the gospel go forward. It's not his own desire for fame, but it is a yearning for an increase of the master's kingdom. And I want to describe two incidents in Spurgeon's life 
that will help us to understand something about his views about preparing men for battle. The first incident comes from February the 2nd, uh, Groundhog Day. I wonder if they called it Groundhog Day in 1852 when this happened, but that's the day, February 2nd, 1852. Spurgeon wasn't yet 18 years old. He was urged by friends, seeing his gifts while he was 17, he was urged by friends to seek admittance to Regent's Park College, which was the Baptist College then located in London. It's in Oxford now. An interview with the principal, whose name was Joseph Angus, was arranged at a home in Cambridge. When Spurgeon came to the house, he was shown into the drawing room. Professor Principal Angus waited in the parlor. And the maid never informed either of them that they were both present, so they sat waiting for the other to come into the room, which never happened. After some time, Angus left the home, and he returned to London, and Spurgeon never met him. There was no interview, and so no college training for Spurgeon. And he saw this as a divine providence. Regents Park College was not for him yet. And he gave four reasons why. First, he suggested maybe he wasn't ready and would benefit more at a later date when he was older. Secondly, his current situation at the little church in Waterbeach, which we heard about last night. Waterbeach is a village near Cambridge. And he saw that blessing was on his ministry there and so he asked the question, how could he leave? How could he go to, to study in London if things were going well with the Lord's blessing in Waterbeach? The third thing that he suggested as a reason was maybe in a few more years, he might be better prepared financially for the cost of living and studying in London. But fourthly, he said he was not uneducated. In fact, he was already a diligent student. He sought to read six books every week. I wonder if any of us seek to read six books a week. I don't. Close. Close. Okay. <laughs> you win then. He sought to read six books every week, and he seems to have had an amazing ability to read quickly, comprehend thoroughly, and remember everything. He, he had one of those minds that we all wish we had, but they're very rare. But this incident demonstrates his own desire, even though unfulfilled, and underscores his early interest in ministerial training. He was interested in it. Three years later, in 1955, I'm sorry, 1855, soon after coming to London to New Park Street Chapel, Spurgeon began to see remarkable conversions among those that he called zealous young men. One of them was named T.W. Medhurst, Thomas Medhurst, who had been converted through Spurgeon's ministry in 1854 and soon began preaching in the streets of London, doing street preaching, Medhurst did. God blessed the street preaching with conversions and reports made their way back to Spurgeon. Now, he himself is, is only 20 years old, but he's just come, uh, he's, he's been in London for a couple of years. Now, Spurgeon knew something of these young men. They were true believers, 
and God was with them, but they had little or no education and probably would not have been admitted to Regent's Park College or any other colleges if they applied. Spurgeon says this, some of the members of New Park Street Chapel were shocked at Medhurst's lack of education and urged Spurgeon to stop him from preaching or, quote, disgrace would be brought to the cause, okay? So you, you get the scene here, young men, uneducated, zealous, preaching, and in some ways are an embarrassment to the members of New Park Street, so they go to the pastor and they say, stop these men. Spurgeon spoke to him. Now, you know, it, it was really interesting, brother, to, to think about how Spurgeon didn't just act, but he talked to people, and he worked his way through things. I really appreciated that in both of the presentations this morning from our brother Jeff and from Ed. Spurgeon spoke to Medhurst, and Medhurst replied that while his English might not be perfect yet, he knew that he well, didn't speak English very well, maybe I should say, he, don't, he didn't speak English good. <laughs> he, he said, I must preach, sir, and I shall preach unless you cut off my head. I, didn't think, I don't think Spurgeon thought of that. But he realized that this man's zeal for the gospel was unquenchable, and so he determined to do whatever was necessary to help Medhurst improve as a preacher. You see, he recognized that though street preaching was very important, men needed to be helped in that street preaching. You don't just send them out, you train them and assist them. So this incident with Thomas Medhurst spurred Spurgeon to take up the cause of ministerial training. And it led to the formation of what was called the Pastor's College or Spurgeon's College. Now, I have to pause here. Um, Joel asked me if I had any PowerPoints to present no, I didn't make any PowerPoints, but I wish I had one just for this. Listen to how the, it's spelled, okay? Because the spelling is very important here. And the um, um, punctuation mark is very important. The Pastor's College, P-A-S-T-O-R apostrophe S. Okay, this is an English quiz. It's not pastors, P-A-S-T-O-R-S, meaning multiple men who come to train. It is rather the college that belongs to the pastor. See, that's the point of the apostrophe S. It's a possessive. The pastor's college, or Spurgeon's college, spelled the same way with the apostrophe S at the end, indicates that this was his project and it belonged to him. Now, the name was changed over the years. It became pastors without the apostrophe. But at first, that designated the fact that it belonged to him. And so in the formation of this college, he agreed to help Medhurst. He met and he hired a man named George Rogers as the instructor, and the pastor's college began. For years, Spurgeon was the main financial supporter of the pastor's college. Remember, it belonged to him. He used money from the sale of his sermons as well as his own income to support the students and to support the instructors. He was paying the bill. Medhurst was the first. Soon there was another. In, pardon me, in 1860, there were 20 students. In 1862, there were 39 students. 
1863, there were 66 students, and it was not long before there were almost 100 men enrolled in the pastor's college. Here are some facts. By his death in January 1892, almost 900 men had been trained. They served all over the United Kingdom and around the world. In 1883, so this is nine years before his death, graduates were located in New Zealand, Australia, the Bahamas, India, the United States, Canada, North Africa, and South Africa. By that year, 1883, there were 652 pastors, missionaries, and evangelists who were spread around the world. That's pretty impressive figures. Of course, Spurgeon was the draw, but there are a lot of men who were trained. Now, can I, can I throw something in here that's totally irrelevant to what I'm talking about, but you'll be interested in? Is that okay? Will you give me permission? Somebody raise their hand and say it's okay. All right, good. You know, Metropolitan Tabernacle had a fire early in the 20th century. It was rebuilt, and then Nazi bombs hit it during the Blitz around 1940. So the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London was basically destroyed. The facade is still there the same. The footprint is the same. But inside the building, it's kind of ugly. It's a 1950s-style modernist. It's not that great. Probably seat about 700. When I've been in there for a service, I've counted the number of seats. It seats about 700. But Spurgeon's son, Thomas, was a pastor in Auckland, New Zealand. And he built a two-thirds size replica of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which still stands today. I've actually been in it. So you can't go to London and walk inside and see what the Met Tab looked like, but you can go to Auckland, New Zealand, and you can see it. Now, it's two-thirds the size, so it's not as big as it would have been in London, but still, you get the sense of the railings and the platform and all the rest. It's really wonderful. You ever go to, to, to New Zealand, make sure you go and see the tabernacle in, in Auckland. All right, end of interlude. The college offered courses in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, in systematic theology, biblical studies, ethics, philosophy, English, science, and geography. Now that's interesting. Most Bible colleges and seminaries these days don't offer classes in English, science, and geography. But think about what Spurgeon was trying to do. He was trying to help these men who are preaching on the street, giving them some information, common information, that would assist them in their preaching. He really thought this through. You know, if students come to our seminary, generally speaking, they have a, a bachelor's degree before they come so that they have been instructed in general subjects. Well, these young men didn't have anything like that. And so Spurgeon saw the need to replace them. But not only was the pastor's college a place of learning, it was a place of piety. They determined that they wanted to find a way to, uh, to build up the spiritual life of the students. One of the things that they did was to have a daily cycle of prayer. And this daily cycle of prayer was in connection with the pastor's college students missionary association which seems to indicate that students were given the responsibility of leading the prayer time. Now, they, they put out a list that lasted throughout the week, um, Sunday through Friday, and this is, uh, this is how it worked. On Sunday, they, the students were instructed to pay, pray for the provision of laborers and for an outpouring on the Holy Spirit on all missionary efforts. So, 
Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would thrust forth men into the harvest field to reap, and that the Holy Spirit would do this work and bless their labors. And then Monday through Friday, they focused their attention on different parts of the world, especially places where they knew there were uh, missionary works that were going on. So on Monday, Africa was the focus of attention, and there were specific locales and men who were mentioned in the prayers. On Tuesday, it was China and Japan, once again with particular places and individuals for whom prayer was offered. On Wednesday, it was the European continent in the same style. On Thursdays, it was India. And on Fridays, it was Haiti and Brazil. So they were missionary-minded in their prayers in this daily gathering. Now, they didn't have classes on Sundays, I'm not sure exactly how that worked, but certainly the rest of the days of the week, it did work. And they prayed for, especially graduates of the pastor's college, because there were pastors who were settled abroad in Australia, in Tasmania, in New Zealand, in South Africa, in Canada, in Nova Scotia, in Jamaica, and in the USA. They were all over the world, and they prayed for these men. But the highlight of each week came on Friday afternoon because that was the day when Spurgeon came in and he lectured to the students. And isn't it surprising to think that a book, two books came out called Lectures to My Students. Well, those were the lectures that Spurgeon would give on Friday afternoon. In fact, there are stories about the anticipation that was present among the students when Friday afternoon came and they were longing and waiting for Spurgeon to appear. And when he came in, they would cheer and they would clap because their hero was present with them. They loved him very dearly. So he lectured to them about the gospel ministry, but he also took it upon himself to introduce material that would help them. So he read to them from various Puritan writings. He read the poems of John Milton, one of the great poets of the English language, and William Cooper, John Newton's friend who was a great poet. And he read these things as lessons in elocution, okay? Pronunciation, expression. um, uh, What was the word that you used before? Projection projection to speak from the diaphragm. So even the men who had the bigger chests would have to learn how to project their voices and to pronounce their words properly so that you didn't have cockney preachers. You had preachers who had slightly better diction with their English. Spurgeon thought of everything. And that's a really good thing, isn't it? Uh, I know sometimes when I hear some students preach and they mispronounce words, or even pastors who mispronounce words, I cringe. Here's one for you. H-E-I-G-H-T. It is not height. It's height. Okay? So from now on, don't ever say height. Now you can say depth. You can say width. But you have to say height. Make sure you get that T in there. That's what it is, all right? That's, that's my lesson in elocution for today. Spurgeon said this, the college was the first important institution commenced by the pastor, he's speaking in the third person, and it still remains his firstborn and best beloved. To train ministers of the gospel is a most excellent work, and when the Holy Spirit blesses the effort, 
the result is of the utmost importance both to the church and to the world. That's how much he cared for the pastor's college. Now, what were the principles behind his actions? Well, there are three foundational truths that informed his decision to go forward. And the first one is this. Look, look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. By the way, I've never heard any of you say height incorrectly, so I'm not addressing any specific individual. <laughs> Truthfully, I've never, I don't know that. So maybe all of you already have proper elocution, but in case you don't and you use the word tomorrow in your sermon, now you know what to say. I had a speech teacher in college who told an interesting story. Um, he, he, you know, he's a speech teacher. And he had been pronouncing the, the thing on a, with a tuxedo that you wrap around your waist. Well, he pronounced it as cummerbund, but it's actually cummerbund. There is no B. And he told us the story that it took a long time, and somebody came up to him afterwards and said, by the way, it's cummerbund. And he was embarrassed that he was a speech teacher and didn't get that right. <laughs> we all make those kind of mistakes, don't we? All right. Ephesians 4.11, speaking about the ascended Christ, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Here's Spurgeon's first foundational truth. Only Christ can make a minister. Ultimately, when you think about men and the ministry, it has to be recognized that only Jesus Christ can do this and he's present, and he's active in the church. He focused upon divine sovereignty, that the Savior is not far away at the right hand of God, watching what happens on earth uninterestedly, but rather that he's active and present so that divine initiative can be recognized. When a man is given the gifts to be able to proclaim the word, he receives those gifts from Jesus Christ. And this is a demonstration of his presence with the church. This is where Spurgeon began. He said this, colleges cannot make ministers. And that's true today. If Christ has not given a man, he is no minister. So only men who could give evidence of gift were admitted and like membership to the tabernacle, wasn't that fascinating to hear those stories? Like membership to the, to the tabernacle, entrance into the college required a personal interview with Spurgeon. And there had to be some demonstration of gifts because he did not believe that the college could take just anyone and turn that individual into a minister of Christ. There had to be some sense even in, in the, the smallest ways that Jesus Christ was equipping a man to take this role and to serve in this way. So that's the first foundational principle. The second one is this. Ministers themselves have a responsibility to increase their gifts. Turn over to 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 16. 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 16. Maybe we can start in verse 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, that's the public reading of scripture, 
to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Now this is where the temptation comes to preach this passage. There's some striking things here. Think about what Paul says at the end. You will save yourself. Do you preach a gospel of self-salvation? Auto-soderism? That's what he says. If you do these things, you will save yourself, and not only yourself, those who hear you. Now Paul's not talking here about eternal salvation and the forgiveness of sins. But he's saying that a useful minister is one who char- whose life is characterized by these things. And the, the emphasis is on an increasing awareness among God's people of growth and gift in you. So that over the course of one year or two years or five years, they can say, Pastor so-and-so is better today than he was five years ago. His preaching has improved. His personal conversation has improved. His understanding of the scriptures has improved. That's, that's what Paul is saying here. And that's what Spurgeon recognized. Let progress be seen by all. We see this in his own young life. If it's true for ministers, how much more so for aspirants? In fact, in my first semester, first year pastoral theology class, we spend about an hour on this text, urging the young men to recognize that they should never, ever be satisfied with their progress. Now, I'm near the end of my ministerial usefulness. I know that. I'm old. But I still cannot rest content in the gifts that I have. I need to improve them. I need to strengthen them. I need to use them for the benefit of God's people. And that's true of all of us, but especially young men. Now, this is not a contradiction of the first principle, but it's simply an application of the great principle of sanctification. Work out your own salvation. Four, you know the rest. It is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We go back to what I said earlier this morning. The gospel comes, and the gospel gives us new life and the forgiveness of sins, and the Holy Spirit indwells us, and the Holy Spirit impels us to grow in these things, to work out our salvation. Or other texts, um, if you by the Spirit put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, you will live. If you mortify your sin, you will live. Who does it? Well, Paul says, if you by the Spirit... It's not the Spirit suddenly zapping you. It's not you in the flesh. It's you by the Spirit. Or how about this one? Do you ever think about this? The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Think about that for a moment. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Who controls you? You do by the Holy Spirit. Fascinating stuff. I mean, not surprising The pastor's college was an attempt to fulfill this principle. Think about Medhurst and the beginning of the college. A zealous young man upon whom the blessing of God seemed to be, and Spurgeon said, that which is good shall be made better. That that was the idea. You take a gift that Christ has given and you sharpen it, you strengthen it, you build it up so that it's better. 
The third principle. Ministers have a responsibility to train men. Just turn over a page or two to 1 Timothy 2. I hope I don't get in trouble with what I'm about to say. The navigators have misappropriated this verse. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is an exhortation to Timothy as a minister to train ministers. This is not a verse about discipleship one-to-one. This is not the text to go to uh, for women to sit down with other women. Now, does the Bible speak about that? Yes, but not in this text. Okay? This is about ministers training ministers. And that's what Spurgeon understood. He understood this principle, and he took it seriously, that he had a responsibility to see the next generation of ministers raised up. I, I don't mean to criticize the navigators, okay? But they have misappropriated this text, and they've misused it to create a doctrine that it doesn't teach. It's about ministers and the responsibility for ministers to train others. When the college began, Medhurst began under a pastor named Charles Hoskin that Spurgeon uh, brought in. Then he went to live with George Rogers, who became the primary teacher of the pastor's college. And Spurgeon supported and provided more than taught at this point. But as the pastor's college developed, others carried the major load of instruction. So he he came to this text and he saw the importance of ministerial responsibility, but he recognized that that could be delegated to others. They had to see that there was a means by which men could be trained to do the work of the ministry, but he didn't have to do it all himself. And so he was able to work with others and do it well. See, these are the three foundational truths that Spurgeon drew from passages like 2 Timothy 2.2 to express his views in greater detail. In fact, he gives an exposition of 2 Timothy 2.1 and 2 in his annual report of the college, which was made in 1882 and 1883 during that school year. Here are the principles that he lays out in that address. Number one, the man of God must be himself strong. Look at verse one. Therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The simplicity and openness of the work are in part its trial. There is no hidden mystery to true Christianity. There aren't any secrets that we whisper to each other. We don't have the equivalent of a secret handshake. Its truths are available to all and on display for all to see. There are many witnesses. Everything must be done accordingly. And so he must be strong in the faith. The second reason that Spurgeon gives under this principle is this. Committing the plain gospel to faithful men is not so small a matter as it looks to be. It's not as simple as you might think. He lays it out with three sub-points. Number one, there is a temptation to be innovative and novel. We see that in our own day, don't we? What's the newest, the latest, the greatest? How can we get people in? It's really easy to get people in. It's simple to do that. He says, young minds may be tempted to make a name for themselves. Oh, I came in this so that I could serve Christ, but you know, I like the adulation that I get 
And so I will do things that will help people to see how important I am, what a useful person I am. His third point, imparting an established fixed theological system with freshness requires much help. So ministers must be strong because they need to learn the system of truth that is contained in the Bible. It's not simple to probe into the deep things of God. It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. His third reason why the man of God must himself be strong is this. He says, error is a common problem with teachers. Error is a common problem with teachers. The Christian tutor may cut corners for sake of acceptance. I better not say this because if I say this, I'll get in trouble or people won't like me or people will move on, so I'll cut the corner. You must be strong. And Spurgeon says sometimes teachers want recognition for erudition, they, they, for their brilliance. They want to be profound, so they must be strong. There's a fourth reason that he gives. Discouragements present themselves regularly. All of you who are pastors know and understand this principle. We all have been through those times when it seems that God's blessing is upon our work and there are other times when suddenly it seems like everything is going wrong and disappointments come. Spurgeon recognized that especially with students they might rush ahead without thinking or the desire for immediate results may bring trouble upon them or students who have not been well taught may fall into sin and error and they aren't always what we hope that they will be. So when he looks at verse 1 here, he says, you must be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is not a strength that comes from sort of digging in your legs and standing up with your back and bringing all of your power together. It's a strength that comes from the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer. It's a trust in the promises of God. Spurgeon's second principle upon which he says the pastor's college was built is this. The man of God must pass on the truth of Scripture, that this is the great task, to proclaim the truth of Scripture. Here's a quotation. As for myself and my associates, we believe the doctrines of the gospel have been settled when the Spirit first inspired the Bible. That is, there aren't new doctrines there are old doctrines, and they're all contained in the Word of God from Genesis through Revelation. And so here are some of his beliefs. First, he believed in the supreme authority of Scripture, that it, was, it had a divine origination. We would use language like infallible and inerrant, clear, certain, sufficient. That's the language that we would use. That's what he meant. He had the highest view of the word of God. The spirit of God inspired it. We have received it. The second uh, thing that he believed in is what I've called the fixed system of theology. To put it simply, that which was true for the apostles was true in 1882. And of course, it's still true today. So the doctrine that we believe is not an innovative doctrine, nor is it a developed doctrine through 2,000 years of history. It's the doctrine of the apostles. You know, it troubles me when I read um, books, for example, on the Trinity. And you'll read a New Testament scholar say, 
Well, the, the language of Trinity didn't come into play in the, the church until the third century, so the apostles would not have recognized the doctrine of the Trinity. It drives me mad to read that. Because I look at 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Or I read the Great Commission, baptizing in the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I say, you're kidding me? Maybe they didn't use the Latin word Trinity, but they certainly believe that God is one and God is three. There's no doubt about that. What we believe today is what the apostles believe, or no, let me put it this way. What we believe today must be what the apostles believe. Is it possible that we have errors in our system? Of course it is, and that's why humility is so important. But we want to have apostolic doctrine, not doctrine that comes from the fifth century, the 10th century, or my favorite century, the 17th. It's not that theirs, it's the apostles. Then Spurgeon believed that this fixed system was to be taught dogmatically to students. And what he means by dogmatically is, is um, the traditional way of teaching systematic theology. That is, that we use the light of nature and we, we use the revelation that God has given to us and we benefit from everything that Christ has given. So we bring those things together. And then the fourth thing that he believed was this, the student is to proclaim the system that he learns to others. You know, one of the things I, I tell my students in the first year is, I urge them to choose someone, or maybe an era, and spend, de determine with God's blessing to spend their time throughout the next several decades of their ministry getting to know that individual. You could choose St. Augustine, or you might choose Martin Luther, or I say to them, you might choose Charles Spurgeon. Get hold of all of his sermons and spend the next 30 years reading through Spurgeon's sermons. You know what? You'll get a good theological education if you do that. That's the point. Learn it and proclaim it to others. Spurgeon knew the importance of that. Principle number three. The man of God must pass on the truth to faithful men will be able to teach others. And here's his take on verse two, which is basically what I've said a few moments ago. The man of God must pass on the truth to faithful men who'll be able to teach others also. A couple of subpoints. First off, they must be faithful men. The teachers must be faithful. By that he meant trustworthy, fit to be relied on. And he laid out four ways especially that they were to be faithful, faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, having no other gods before him, faithful in their conduct so that there were no stains upon their life, faithful in their doctrine, committed to that which the apostles taught, and faithful in devotion, that is, a life of genuine piety before God. And he said that these characteristics mark men out from others and they must be found in those who prepare. Now, I notice Spurgeon is not saying here anything that we wouldn't be concerned with ourselves. Faithfulness to Christ, faithful in conduct, faithful in doctrine, faithful in devotion. But he saw that these things were essential in the lives of students. Of course, sadly, many fail. Many fail. Second sub-point to this third principle. 
The man of God must pass on the truth to faithful, faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He said, and this, remember, this is from the report that he gave to the college in 1882. They must be able to teach others. And he saw two things here. First, they must have an ability to instruct others. They, they need to be able to take what they know and communicate it so others can hear it, receive it. And they must, be, they must have what he called a readiness to do so. They, they must be willing. Not just um, uh, grasp the system of Christian theology and sit in the basement and write books. But get out there and talk to people and help them. And he said that this requires several things. It requires clear and practical thinking. An orderly and forceful arrangement of thought. An ability to be able to put things together. Um, you know, every once in a while I like to have corned beef hash. But most of the time I want things laid out on the plate. That's what he means. Forceful, orderly arrangement. Expression in clear language. An adaptation to the audience. Uh, I think we would put it this way, learn how to read the room. Right? I, I know that when I'm speaking at a conference like this, I do so differently to when I'm invited to speak to seventh graders at a Christian school chapel. Usually when I speak to them, I don't have any notes. I just walk around in front of them with a Bible in my hand. But here, I've got extensive notes because this is a different circumstance. You have to learn how to adapt to your audience. And of course, there must be a knowledge of the truth. Spurgeon was careful to structure the college around these principles. The teachers were proven men of God, strong in the things of God. The teachers were men proven strong in faithfulness to Scripture. And the students were asked to show themselves called and capable of faithful men. They expected progress in the lives of the students. George Rogers, who from 1857 was the chief tutor, set out four distinctive principles of the college. The question was, how was the pastor's college different from other colleges? And he laid out these four things. First, financial support was to come from God's provision, not from the world. Public money was a temptation. Our brother and I were talking about that last night. It's easy to fund your school with public money, but once you tap into the federal system, look out. It's the world's method of bringing compromise if you do that. Our, our seminary is committed not to do that. We don't want federal money. We want the Lord to provide for us. Secondly, he believed that, or Rogers said that the pastor's college was different from others because worship was simple. Zeal was not for liturgy, but for the spiritual and eternal welfare of our fellow men. The students were warned against any form in worship that would distract from God and the gospel. Have you heard the, the Church of England limerick about Spurgeon? Okay, you ready for this? There once was a preacher named Spurgey who didn't think much of liturgy, but his sermons were fine, and I preached them as mine, and so did the rest of the clergy. I don't know where that came from. Um, I've looked it up. I've looked into it. and I don't, I don't know who made it up, but it's a pretty good one, isn't it? The Church of England ministers who are so liturgical 
still saw in Spurgeon's sermons something good and they preached them. Of course, today we'd call that plagiarism. <laughs> Unless you stood up and said, uh, I'm preaching to you now Charles Spurgeon's sermon from last week that was published in London, here it is. But I doubt that they did that. Oh, F Father, that was such a great sermon today. Oh, yes, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Roger's third principle. The college, the pastor's college, adheres to the Puritanic in distinction from the modern Germanic theology. That is, liberalism has no place here. At the end of the 19th century, liberalism began to overtake much of Western Christianity. And the pastor's college stood against it. They took seriously what Paul said in Ephesians 4. One Lord, one faith, which is found in scripture and believed in every age by God's people. That is the old faith is the true faith. One Lord, one faith. Of course, the third is one baptism. Fourthly, he says, the great good for students was not academic recognition, but acceptance as pastors and teachers of Christian churches. Now, he believed that the students were to be well-versed in Hebrew and Greek, in the contents of the Bible, and in Christian theology, and with the Spirit's aid to preach with power for the conversion of souls. So that, pardon me, <coughs> for Spurgeon, for Rogers, and for the others, that was enough. They didn't grant degrees. They wanted to see men upon whose life the Spirit was giving demonstration of power and blessing. Let me make a couple of applications and then I'll conclude. The first, faith in God through scripture can accomplish wonderful things. And Spurgeon saw passages such as the ones we have so briefly looked at today and he said, I will obey them. The word of God says this, it's my obligation, I will do it. Now, when he started, he had no expectation that 900 men would be trained. He just went to do what he believed the word of God told him to do. In fact, you know what we can say? He hoped for one. When the pastor's college was started, he hoped that Medhurst would be well-trained. And 30, 40 years later, there were 900 who had been trained and spread around the world. That's a great general principle, isn't it? We just do what the Lord tells us to do. Leave the rest to him. Secondly, every minister, every minister needs to take 2 Timothy 2.2 seriously. Now, as I said before, not that you or I do this alone. We can delegate. We can delegate to colleges. We can delegate to seminaries. We can delegate to institutions that train men, and much good can come from that. But you have a responsibility to have your eyes upon the men in your church, and cultivate them for gospel ministry. Um, I have a friend who asked me the other day uh, if I had done any work. The church where I was converted down in Worcester, when I was in high school, about 10 young men, it was just an average size evangelical Baptist church, but about 10 young men went into the ministry from my youth group out of maybe 20, and as far as I know, they're all either retired or still in the ministry today. Pretty, it, was, it was astounding as I thought about it. So I, I meditated on how did that happen? And one of the ways that it happened was that the pastors back then, now we had a pastor deacons type of you know, typical Baptist church that 
Um, but the pastors were seeking to cultivate in the young men a desire to go into the ministry. They were honorable. And they would, I, I remember being asked personally and in front of the whole deacon board one time, have you ever thought about the gospel ministry? And it was that voice that came from the leadership of the church that really helped me to think through whether or not the Lord was calling me into ministry. Men, I would urge you, take time with the younger men in your church. If they say, no, I've never thought about it before, I want to be a computer programmer, say, God bless you, do that to the glory of God. But sometimes you'll find that, that one of them will say, you know, I've thought about that, but I've never said anything to anyone. And now your opportunity to cultivate a relationship and to encourage that man comes along. That's what Spurgeon did. That's what you need to do. See, 2 Timothy 2.2, you, as a faithful man, train others. Uh, there was a Presbyterian who wrote um, a really helpful uh, little article in the early 19th century. It was around 1815. And he, he made this point. He says, every church needs a minister. And generally speaking, they take their minister from another church. And so every church ought to be willing to give a minister to another church. It ought to seek to cultivate a man from its own midst so that he can go somewhere else and serve. I thought it was a wonderful argument. But that's the point that Spurgeon would make as he looks at this text. The third, principle, or third application uh, is that the training of ministers must have priority. Do you remember that quotation that I gave you early on in this presentation where Spurgeon said this was his first love? This was the first thing that he sought to do. This is what he considered to be the most important. We, we need to think in these terms. I'll give you a little bit of the presentation I give when I talk about our seminary and I go to churches. And I say this. We rightly ought to be concerned with what I call geographic expansion of the church. Really, we ought to be. I want to see my men that graduate from our school be committed to foreign missions and lead their churches to foreign missions, and hopefully some of them will go into foreign missions, okay? So I believe in geographic expansion, but I also believe in generational expansion. I ask the question of people, who will be the pastor for your grandchildren? I've had many people tell me that's a profound question. Who will be the pastor for your grandchildren? Brothers, you need to think about that now because that young man in your church maybe one day will be the pastor of the grandchildren of the people in your congregation or someone else's congregation, and now is the time to encourage them. We, we saw the statistics, was it first thing this morning or last night, uh, of how the, 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 um, the rate of those who leave the ministry I think some of that may be that, that men aren't called and they find themselves in ministries that Christ has not given them the gifts for and frustration comes. But in other cases, it's because they haven't been helped and strengthened from the beginning. Do that, brothers, and prepare now. Think now, 30 years down the, the road, and recognize that that young man who's zealous for Christ in your congregation could well be the man who in 30 years is replacing you or replacing someone else 
and serving Christ. That's, that's what Spurgeon saw, and that's why there's a priority here. And then fourthly, one of his biographers, um, Mr. Fullerton, recorded this. Colleges do not exist to make ministers but to train. Let's pray the Lord of the harvest. And that's what we ought to do. That's what Spurgeon did. That's what we ought to do. Um, pray that, that God will take young men and raise them up and use them so that I've got a sermon that I preach on this and I begin it the, the introduction um, tells the story of West Point graduation from West Point the long gray line as it's called and that's um, to help the graduates of West Point fill, fit into the long line that goes all the way back of, of graduates. And I suggest that maybe as ministers we need to have a long crimson line. We need to think about ourselves in terms of what is behind, but also looking forward to what's ahead. So I, I would urge you, don't ever give up the your desire to see missions and geographic expansion of the church, in no way do I mean to undermine that. But I want to add something to your thought, and that is to think about generational expansion and the training of men and their preparation so that your grandchildren will have good pastors who will watch out for their souls. Spurgeon saw that. Let's see it as well. I think that this is an appropriate place to conclude. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we cannot do this work. It is above us, it is beyond us. It's a task that is challenging, and yet you've given us a command, but you've given us your spirit and you've given us your word. We do not do the preparation in the strength of the flesh, we do it by the power of your spirit. We pray that you would raise up more men, able men, men of godliness, men of commitment, men who love God and love their neighbor and who will boldly bring the gospel to those who are before them. Thank you for Charles Spurgeon, for his commitment. We, we don't glorify him, we glorify you and recognize that you used him. We pray that you would use us as well. In Jesus' name, amen.